Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm your host, Christopher Ward, and as always, he's mad, he's bad, and he's dangerous to know. Ladies and gentlemen, the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. Oh, I thought you were talking about yourself. Okay, well, thank you, Christopher. I am very excited to be here and very excited more so than you, about our opening segment, which is about (laughs) Billy Joel. Oh, we're starting with controversy, are we? I'm actually probably closer to the same page with you uh, on Billy Joel in that I like Billy Joel probably more than you do, but I don't totally love him. But nevertheless, I think you'll have to agree these interview clips are excellent. They are excellent. He's a great interview. And I, I have to confess, I did see a Billy Joel concert at Massey Hall in Toronto many years ago. It was right at the beginning of his career. He hadn't had the Stranger album yet. And a friend called me like literally half an hour before the show and said, hey, I got an extra ticket. Do you want to go? I'm like, yeah, sure. And uh, I didn't have any high expectations, but he was such a showman. And the thing that I remember the most is he did a killer Paul Simon impersonation. Really? That sounds excellent. Now, yes. was, was that the concert in which he berated the audience at Massey Hall for talking during his songs? No, he was he was the headliner of that show that I saw. Sure. So, Tom, what else have we got on this week's show? Well, Christopher, we also have my much-talked-about interview with Paul Stanley of KISS. After the many discussions we've had about how terrible Gene Simmons is as an interview subject, it was a real treat to talk to Paul Stanley in 1999. And me being a massive KISS fan from when I was a teen, and I will again be seeing them on their farewell tour in just a few days, it was very cool to be able to sit down and talk to him for a good half hour. Can't wait to share some highlights of that interview with you. Also, we've got some pretty amazing early to mid-70s audio from Alice Cooper talking about the history of the band and his elaborate stage show, among other things. Plus, I've got a whole heaping helping of cool song facts and music news to close out the show. Come out, Virginia, don't let me wait. That's Only the Good Die Young, Billy Joel from 1978 from the album The Stranger, a very controversial song from Billy, and that's the era this interview is from. But first, let's get a little Billy Joel history. Starting in a Britpop cover group called The Echoes, Billy Joel's had a pretty stellar career. Just 23 Grammy nominations, (laughs) three number ones, over 150 million records sold. His first hit was Piano Man in 1973, but it was The Stranger album in 1977 that broke him big time. Ten times platinum sales and a true standard in a song just the way you are. Don't go so what do you changing. Think? Why are you interrupting me when I'm singing? To try and please me. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Sorry. So what do you think his first number one song was? Well, it's not Just The Way You Are, which peaked at number three and was also, by the way, the Grammy-winning song of the year. Mm -hmm. No, it was It's Still Rock and Roll to Me (laughs) from 1980s Glass Houses. Can you guess what the other two number ones are? Oh, um, well, I'm, I am going to guess like early nineties, we didn't start the fire. Cause I know that was a massive hit. <sighs> yeah. What about, uh, I yeah. don't know the other one. What's the other one? Tell her about it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I would say he would not consider those to be the most gleaming jewels in his collection, but who knows? There, actually, he has a, he has some quite succinct comments about We Didn't Start the Fire, which we'll yeah. get to. He, he calls it one of the worst melodies I've ever written. He says, I kind of like the lyric. It's just really not much of a song. If you take the melody by itself, 
It's like a dentist drill. Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Joe DiMaggio. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, that was such a massive hit that they actually started teaching that song in history class in schools. Oh. I remember it came with a teaching guide to talk about all the historical events that he covered in that, what, three minutes and 27 seconds. And it was interesting to listen to if you kind of closed your mind and erased your memory that it was actually Billy Joel, a superstar and noted and respected songwriter that was actually singing this song. It really was a novelty song. It was, but it also carried for me this message of, oh, don't blame me. You know, I was, uh, no, no. Okay, some trivia. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just to get a little jump on your cool song facts. So. Sure. Um, Billy Joel, and I love this one, he was on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Site Selection Committee in 1986, trying to choose where the actual hall was going to be built. Okay. It was down to two cities, San Francisco and Cleveland, and he had the tie-breaking vote. That is For so Cleveland. cool. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Well, Cleveland certainly stakes a respectable claim for the birth of rock and roll. And boy, uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has certainly had a little bit to do with the revitalization of Cleveland. Good for them and good for him for choosing it. Well, these clips um, are from early in Billy Joel's career. Um, but after his initial success, he's candid, he's funny, he's opinionated. Mm-hmm. Here's his reaction to the response to the song. Only the good die young. Most of the mail I've gotten has been from Catholic girls. And I say about 85% of the mail is pro. Really? I said you're absolutely right. <laughs> and then about 50% is from people who are really burned about it. You know, well, you shouldn't say this. You shouldn't say that. Has the record been banned anywhere at all that you know of? I know it was taken off the air in some stations. Some stations got just too much heat, but what... What ended up happening was people were calling to hear what this was all about, so the song got played more. It probably got more airplay than it deserved just because of the people calling up and having this big controversy. Was Virginia a girl that you knew in the past, or was it just something that, uh, that sounded good for the song and the line, uh, Catholic girls start much too late, it was, something, was that just thrown in because it sounded good? Or? No, I knew Virginia. It was based on a real character, but the name Virginia symbolizes virginity. <laughs> just fit you know well okay christopher why is that dude whistling in the background of that clip that makes me laugh like buddy there's billy joel and he's got a microphone stuck in his face and you're in the background going like <laughs> he's just it. whistling while he works he that's is all. speaking he is. of which billy has a great work ethic it's the whole success ethic about um you know you're supposed to work real hard to make a lot of money that doesn't make any sense to me. I figure you're supposed to work real hard because you like your work. Um, I'm lucky. I mean, I'm, it's easy for me to say that because mm-hmm. I like what I do. Um, but it's just, a, you know, it's just a... Uh, why, why break your neck, you know, through your whole youth and then when you're old enough just sit around with your money and, you know, go, oh, well, I have a lot of money. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, he's certainly not just sitting around counting his money in old age. He's now 69 years old. And he's continuing his residency at Madison Square Garden. One concert per month, as long as there is demand. And he's been doing that for five years now. And he's currently booked through August. And I don't expect that will end anytime soon. And he also has a smattering of huge stadium shows in the interim. Good for Billy Joel. Well, he says that he loves touring. I don't go on the road to promote albums. I put out albums to promote the road. I like touring. I mean, that's... 
rock and roll basically comes down to the performance. You know, I mean, even in the old days before there were records, you you had to go to a concert to see it. Right. And that's the whole moment of the show. That's the whole thing. I'm gonna keep doing as you know as long as I can. I don't know if I have as much energy when I'm 50, but I hope I can still you know keep going. You started out as a, a cabaret performer type, piano bar thing like that. Is that correct? No, no. I started out in rock and roll bands. Uh, when I was 14, a lot of people I think have that idea that I played. That's the impression that I got. Yeah, well, cocktail from hearing the piano man. Right. I only, I only did that for about six months, and it, it was just a phony gig. I just did it to, to make the rent, mm-hmm. and I had this whole alter identity you know, where I'd, my shirt out, you know, and hey, I was like, hey, how you doing, real Las Vegas kind of. <laughs> That's so funny. He says, I don't know how much I'm going to love touring when I'm 50, <laughs> and now he's 69. <laughs> Well, this is interesting. He stands up for women in the business, sort of. There's this thing going on, you know, like more and more women are getting into business. And uh, they're getting into the competitive mainstream of what business is. And if a guy is real aggressive, you know, he's got a lot of moxie, you know. But if a woman's real aggressive, she's called a, a bitch. Mm-hmm. And she's called, uh, well, she's a real creep, you know. And uh, I don't think that's fair. I sympathize. Right with women who are, uh, are entering a competitive business, you know. And it's like that doesn't take away from their femininity to me, you know, as long as she comes home and she Keeps does the, the right thing, you know. <laughs> okay, he was doing so well yeah. before the very end of that clip. And <laughs> what know. he said was some pretty progressive stuff for a mid-'70s rock star, and then he kind of veered off into the macho. But uh, hopefully we can just give him a pass on that one for now. But... <laughs> You know, I, I actually couldn't hear the very last thing he said. He said something about as long as she comes home. It yes. Like, yeah, Ooh. almost like to, you know, to kind of tend to his needs. And it was just a little bit uh, yucky. Oh, <laughs> a tad. He talks about following up the Stranger album. I don't know. See, when I was making the Stranger, I didn't realize it was going to be a commercially successful record. I just thought I was making another album. I didn't really think commercially. Um, and we went in. I guess a lot of people figured we were going to have a lot of pressure to meet the Stranger again with this album but it's not we didn't think about it we just went in and made another record it's probably more uh jazzy we have freddie hubbard playing some trumpet he's great for mike Maneri's playing vibes on it it's just you know the way the stranger was kind of varied like one cut was like this and then another song was totally different this album is even more varied mm-hmm. uh that's why we called it 52nd street the only thing all the songs had in common was the studio, which is on 52nd Street. Christopher, can someone tell that guy to shut up in the background? He's playing ping pong now. <laughs> Adam, Better than whistling. Adam, just play a little bit of that clip again. Let's, let, let's listen to the ping pong. Freddie Hubbard plays some trumpet. He's great for that. <laughs> Why is there a guy playing ping pong and whistling in the background? It's a backstage thing. Yeah, okay. He's thought about the pluses and minuses of having a hit. The pit single is a two-edged sword. On one hand, it's, it's good because of the national exposure and everybody gets to hear it and they play it all the time. But on the other hand, a lot of people think that that song represents what your music is. And if people don't like that hit single, they'll tend to write you off. Yeah. And people who didn't like Piano Man probably wouldn't bother listening to Billy Joel. Yeah. So I don't, I can't get that crazy behind, you know, what the single is going to be because there is not one song that represents everything I do. Okay, I actually really like that clip because he makes such a good point about how artists are judged by their hit singles when those songs are only a slice of what they do. 
and aren't necessarily reflective of their overall sound. And I can't imagine there are any artists who've had hits who say that our repertoire of hit singles completely reflects who we are. Well, look at Elton. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know what his opinion of, of his individual songs is, but I would say he would probably rather play, I don't know, Burn Down the Mission than Crocodile Rock, <laughs> but I'm guessing. You know, I liked Crocodile Rock until the very moment when you just said the title in that way. <laughs> <laughs> Very you know what good. I mean? I sure do. And I do agree with you. Um, but, you know, like, let's let's talk about Alana. You and Alana Miles, you know, you had a, a, a body of work that you worked together on. And yet there's probably, you know, perhaps three, four songs that she was best known for. Do you think that, for example, reflected who she was as an artist in a in a meaningful way? You know, I've never been asked this, but in her case... I would say yes. That's great. I think, um, I mean, Black Velvet is a song, obviously, which I'm proud of and which has, you know, considerable durability. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Love Is was her first single. And that's yeah. a whole different vibe. And it's a great, it's got a great rock sound. So it represents that side of her. And Black Velvet is that kind of that sultry side, but it's still got a rock vibe to it. Well, they're both great showcases mm-hmm. for her as a vocalist. You know, the name of the game when you're writing a song for an artist specifically. Well, there you go. Billy Joel from the mid to late 70s on Famous Lost Words. You're listening to Famous Lost Words. And uh, Tom, it is a well-documented fact that you are the world's biggest Kiss fan. Sure. And after all, I want to rock and roll all night and party every day. (laughs) Oh, gosh. I think, though, that even you... As a dedicated Kiss fan, blanched a little during our Gene Simmons segment. Yes. Well, you know, the Gene Simmons segment was really interesting because I'd met Gene on a couple of occasions. And when you and I talked about the topic of the worst interviews that we'd ever done, Gene Simmons immediately jumped to the top of my list. And that was no fluke because he jumped to the top of other people's list as evidence in your book is this live the book about much music that you wrote and so so many people brought him up that i had to play a clip it was a disturbing clip and it was a yucky clip of gene simmons it was, just, it was of gene simmons just being 100 percent gene simmons and being so dislikable so By contrast, I really did want to play you this interview that I did with Paul Stanley from KISS from 1999. Now, with the Paul Stanley interview, you can hear his confidence. And I think his confidence can be interpreted by some as being arrogance, but I also think that his confidence is also a defense mechanism over a lot of the stuff that's been hurled his way in terms of, you know, rock criticism over the years. Now... This interview dates back to 1999, so it's 20 years old, which is shocking to me. And Paul Stanley was in Toronto to star in The Phantom of the Opera. I'm a huge Kiss fan, as you know, as we've discussed, so this was a real thrill. But I had to talk about The Phantom of the Opera first, so I did. So now I'm kind of fanboying about his performance, but I hope you'll forgive me. Let's have a listen. So how have you enjoyed it so far as your uh, run as The Phantom? Well, it's been great. You know, it really was a dream come true for me because it was something that... I'd wanted to do for quite a while. And uh, when I got a call uh, whether or not I was interested in doing it, I said, sure. And then uh, they said, well, you know, you have to pass the audition and this and that. And I hadn't auditioned for anything in quite a while. But uh, it went great. And uh, so far, every night, uh, you know, the show ends with a standing ovation. So we must be doing something really right. And it's great. It's just great to do live theater. 
Do you think it's uh, allowed people to see you in a different light? Oh, undoubtedly. You know, um, not to see, it hasn't allowed me to see myself in a different light because, you know, it, it's really people's either preconceived ideas of who I am or their own narrow view of who I am. So uh, for some people, it's, it's very uh, eye-opening. And for other people, they just go, oh, I knew he could do it. So it's really great. It's great because the audience is made up of um, regular theater goers. Uh, it's made up of um, people who are fans of mine, fans of the band. And it's great because I know that there's some people who come here excited to see me. And I know there's other people who think, gee, I wonder if this guy can pull it off. But uh, so far, it's just been going amazingly well. And the cast is awesome. It's just, you know, it's, it couldn't be any better. Now, some of the media have said that playing the Phantom... Uh, is just an extension of what you do in KISS. And I, I think that's a little unfair. I think it sells you short. Because I think that um, I think that what you achieved, and I saw the opening night, the opening media night, mm -hmm. and I think what you achieved by, by the subtlety of your performance um, is, is quite a bit different from what you do in KISS. And I've, I've seen a lot of KISS shows. So how did you face the challenge of doing something so different? Well, you know... Um just to, to, to address the first part of it, media tends to be a bunch of very bitter people. They tend to be very frustrated people who wish they could be doing what they're watching instead of talking about it. So um, if they ever put the camera down or the pen down and tried it, they, they would see that it's not quite as easy as it looks. But, you know, that being so, um, you know, I think once again, the, the bottom line is that people who are paying to see the show love every minute of it. And um, I hardly think that anybody is looking at the stage and thinking, gee, that's that guy with the tights and the bare chest and the, the high-heeled boots. Um, you know, it's, um, it's very much a different animal because uh, performing in Kiss or doing um, live concerts, you're consciously involving the audience. Um, you're making them part of it. Um, whereas doing theater, you ignore the audience and the audience watches as everything unfolds. So it's, it's very different. And it, again, it's just very satisfying. All right, there he goes. <laughs> there he goes talking about rock critics. And we've heard some of that uh, criticism on a previous episode when we played When Rock Stars Attack. I really do like that stuff. He, he's a little more measured than some. Though. Yes. I have to give him credit. For sure. And then I got to the good stuff. I asked him about the long-term appeal of KISS. You know, it's really for the fans to explain. You know, for me to tell anybody why we have such a rabid following i i, I can't it, it, it's a very personal thing to all the fans and the fact that we touch that nerve in everybody is uh something that that i don't take lightly but at the same time i can't really say much more than i think that we we tap into a part of people that allows them to be themselves or to um celebrate being themselves or celebrate life i really don't know it's different to everybody some people love the way we look hate the music some people love the music hate the way we look some people like both some you know teach his own the beauty of it is that so many people find something they like in it it's true and i thought about it and i thought it came down to two things for me i like the costumes i like the music what else is there you know it doesn't matter and so but um another thing i was pointing out to someone i work with today is that uh is that when you see Kiss after 20 years of seeing them the first time like I did, it's not like seeing the Stones. The Stones are wrinkly and haggard, and they put on a great show. I love the Stones. But you guys, because of the makeup, you look as young and as timeless as you did then. I think that's the, the, um, 
ideal for a superhero. And in a sense, Kiss are superheroes. I think we're a rock band, but we transcend it. You know, we transcend rock and we're something bigger. And uh, when we did the reunion, we had to come back and make sure that we looked virtually identical because um, time stands still, you know, when you go away. And when the makeup band disappeared, all that was left was the image of what we had been. So to come back, you know, would be like um, if James Dean suddenly showed up or Marilyn Monroe and you see them like 40 or 50 years later and you go, oh my God, you know, that's not how I, I remember them. So we, we made a, a very conscious effort to make sure that we would give the fans what they expected, which was for Kiss to come back to life. You know, I was talking to someone else and I, I was saying that I really appreciate the virtuosity of each member of the band. And it's something that never occurred to me when I was younger. But everyone does their part so well. And I was thinking of one song that I could talk about, and it would, it would probably be the live version of 100,000 Years. There's so many, there's so many great elements in that that showcases everyone. Uh, the, the drum solo is great. Like, it's a magnificent drum solo. I listen to it all the time. And, uh, and Ace's lead guitar. And, you, and your control of the crowd and it's one thing that I, as I, I was watching for the last time I saw you, it's probably six, eight months ago, saw you perform. And I just really appreciate it on a new level that you're a showman and you do such a great job. And I don't, you know, I, I think you really take it seriously, you know, pleasing, pleasing your fans. It's, it's the thing that counts most. It's paramount is that when people pay to see something, they should walk out feeling they got their money's worth. It's no different than going to the store and if you bought a sack full of groceries and you looked in and there were no groceries, but you said, wait a minute, I paid. Mm -hmm. So it's always been about delivering the goods. And virtuosity to me is really about how we work as a band as opposed to the individual. There's nobody in here who's going to win an honest-to-goodness, credible music award as a musician. If anybody in this band believes that, then they're kidding themselves. But the fact is that we play well together. Mm -hmm and that we, we touch something in people. Mm -hmm. And that's much more important than virtuosity. Mm -hmm. You can go to any one of um, 50 or 100 guitar institutes or music schools and learn to play with incredible virtuosity and never touch anything in people. Yeah. It's really not about technique. With the millennium approaching, we're talking to celebrities about the important events in their lives. This is a two-part question. First of all, I want to know about a moment in your life that personally shaped you into the person that you are today. Not necessarily a professional moment the birth of my son, which is, um, takes everything to another level. It ups the ante tremendously. Um, obviously, the first time I saw the Beatles was an incredible um, door opening for me because I said, I want to do that, and that's what I, you know, I can do. There were things like that. Um, but what transcends all that is when you suddenly have a child, you know, and suddenly you go, my God, I really am not the most important person in the world, you know, and don't want to be the most important person in the world. So that's... That's a big change, you know, to suddenly look at yourself and go, you know something, I'd rather make him happy than me, you know. So um, that's a that's a, a real revelation. Mm -hmm. It is amazing. You take a bullet from them, and there's no questions asked. Not not even there's no second guessing that fact, is there? I said to somebody, you know, they said, well, what's it like? And I said, you know, if somebody said to me, I need you to walk into the into the freeway traffic. For your for your son, I just go. What time? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's it's not why. It's like okay, you know, just tell me when. What about a news event that happened in your lifetime that you remember exactly where you were and what you were doing uh, when you heard about it? 
I think most um, people of my generation remember a few. And one that I remember when I was a, a kid was uh, JFK being killed. I think that's, that's really a stands out in a lot of people's minds because um, whether or not he was a great president, there was a sense of um, change and idealism. And perhaps with time he would have turned out to be just a horrific president in, in retrospect. But at that time to see um, a voice silenced by a bullet was like very, very shocking to know that um, you could be shot, you could be killed for your point of view. And then after that you had RFK, you had Martin Luther King, you're going, my God, you know, isn't it okay to have a, 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 vo a different voice, a different difference of opinion? So um, I think JFK was, was uh, you know, one that, that stands out. And then I, I was a kid, um, I remember Kent State, where, they, where the, the National Guard in the States opened fire on students. So that's really, you know, the, the stuff that stands out most. So there's Paul Stanley with me from 1999, 20 years ago, and uh, that was very interesting. I, you know, it was 1999, so we were talking to people about the upcoming millennium, and we asked them about the biggest uh, moments um, of their personal lives, things they remember most. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, he talked about the birth of his son, and he talked about uh, remembering the JFK assassination in 63, and the Kent State University shootings, which I think happened in 1970. So that's yeah. all very interesting, and it's interesting to hear him talk about that. Honestly, and it's also interesting to hear a guy who is known for dressing up, you know, in his black tights and his makeup and the big hair and the big grand gestures and the the whole walking and rocking cliche that is Paul Stanley live and hearing him being reflective. I really did enjoy that part of the interview and it was a thrill for me to meet him and to talk to him. I enjoyed it too. I, I have to say you want to talk about striking a, a, a deep contrast with uh, his bandmate. He's just a very thoughtful guy. Yeah. And I really liked what he said about the distinctions between playing in a band versus um, being in a theatrical production mm -hmm. in terms of how you try to engage the audience. It was, uh, yeah, it was cool stuff. Yeah. Great. Glad you liked it. This is Famous Lost Words, and that is Alice Cooper with Schools Out as we travel back in time. Christopher? Let's go back to the early 70s, Yeah. Okay. we, we think. Okay. <laughs> we yeah, that's true. We don't always know. We can't carbon date these things, that's unfortunately. Right. Okay. All right. Band names. The Earwigs. Oh. The don't Spiders. ever call yourself the Earwigs. That's terrible. And Naz, which was already taken by Todd Rundgren, by right. the way. Right. Okay. Anyway, they had to ditch all those names, and they came up with, ta-da, Alice Cooper. <laughs> right. So Alice Cooper is the name of a band at this point, not a person. Correct. Which, which is the source of much confusion in the future, but go ahead. Mm -hmm. Anyway, they chose that name in 1968, and they were signed by Frank Zappa to his personal label. And they were a pretty straight-ahead rock and roll band to begin with, but a series of outrageous performances drew attention to a band that really wasn't selling any records. In particular, um, the performance they did at the Rock and Roll Revival. And this is a show that we have referred to um, over the episodes. Yeah. It was originally an oldies show with people like Chuck Berry and Little Richard and so on, but it, it expanded to include Chicago and it included Cat Mother and the All Night Newsboys. <laughs> oh, what's, what was that song? Good old rock and roll? That's that was one. a good song. Yeah. Anyway, it was, um, it was also the show, of course, where John Lennon and Yoko Ono performed and it mm -hmm. was also the show headlined by The Doors. Well, in that whole running order were uh, Alice Cooper. Right. 
They threw a live chicken into the audience and watermelons and all kinds of now, stuff. It was wacky. Now, the live chicken situation was interesting because someone threw the chicken onto the stage and they were kind of going, what's this chicken doing up here? And I think they threw it off. And then what happened to the chicken afterwards was not pretty. But mm-hmm. I don't think they brought the chicken to the party. <laughs> Did you ever I'm sorry, I, I had to ruminate <laughs> on that for a minute. <laughs> Did anybody ever use that phrase yeah. in a sentence? They didn't bring that chicken to the party. But you'll be going home with the chicken that came with you. No, I know. Um, never mind. Anyway, um, Alice talks about the fact that they were transformed from a sort of straight-ahead rock and roll band to something completely different. Well, we've been together eight years, but we've been doing the theater for five years. About five years. And what were, what were you doing in the previous years? Then? We uh, played a lot of basketball. <laughs> we all worked at a car wash. <laughs> no, we were doing just regular rock music then, you know, and then we decided to put some icing on the cake, you know, do a little theater involved in it. And from that point, the act really became successful? Yeah, well, because people needed something else just other than rock and roll, and hearing rock and roll, they wanted to see something, you know. He also says that the chaos is very tightly structured. The more that it's rehearsed and down, then the music can be much better because everybody knows exactly where their part is supposed to be. It's very precise. The whole thing is very precise, you know. Like Glenn knows he's supposed to be at that point right there because he knows I'm going to jump over or something like that, you know. And then we leave like about 30% of the time for for improvisational things. So it looks like mayhem up there, but they really do have it planned out very well. Well, it's theatrical. Right. It's like blocking stage moves, I, I think. And I guess all of that be, yeah. along with the music cues, everything had to be happening. Uh, sure. Yeah, like know, when they the do the time. guillotine thing and chop Alice's head off, then you've got to plan that right and everybody's got to be at the right spot. Mm-hmm. And that fake Alice head has to be in place and that guillotine has to be fake. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. Speaking of projectiles, okay. as we were, <laughs> yeah. um, for everything they toss at the audience, there's something the crowd throws back at them. Oh, we have people throw all sorts of things on stage. They throw their underwear on stage all the time, you know, and with addresses and phone numbers <laughs> and supposedly the women's lib chips, you know, they all throw their bras on stage in protest and they all have phone numbers inside. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Okay, that was the era, I guess, where people, where fans did that, throwing your, uh, throwing your undies up on stage. I thought that stage. was Tom Jones material, but uh, yeah. apparently it expanded uh, to I guess. Else. Christopher, have you ever seen the documentary? It's called Supermensch, The Legend of Shep Gordon. I have. He was the manager of Alice Cooper, and he believed in from them. From the beginning. From the very beginning. And some of his stories are fantastic and hilarious. You know um, whose who's doc that was. That's Mike Myers who did that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. Your buddy, Mike Myers. But yeah, so the story of Shep Gordon and the story of the super-duper Alice Cooper, which is another documentary, which is fantastic. You don't know You've got to see that one. It's partly animated, and it's really well done. It's a, it's a very unique way of doing a rockumentary, as it were. And it's fairly recent. It's from just the last few years. So super-duper Alice Cooper and super-mensch, the Shep Gordon story. Two things to have a look at when you have several hours on your hands. <laughs> this is Famous Lost Words. And now, time for one of my favorite segments, Cool Song Facts with Tom Jokic. Christopher, I always love putting these together because I, I like testing your knowledge on some of these songs or just trying to blow your mind with all these interesting facts because I'm just as excited to share them as I am to discover them in the first place. So I'm going to maybe have you guess this first one a little bit. So the first person to have a number one hit after they died was who? And it was in January of 1968. 68. Posthumous hit single. A classic song from a soul artist, even though the song itself was more of a ballad. Ah, Otis Redding. 
That's right. Dock of the Bay from Otis Redding, January of 1968, a month after he died in a plane crash. I'm sitting on the dock of the bay, watching the tide roll away. Okay. Um, we're going to jump way ahead to the future with the song Royals by Lord. She wrote that song in half an hour at the age of 15. <laughs> Wasn't she inspired by seeing a photograph of uh, the Kansas City Royals, George Brett? I think so. But it, it is funny because there is a connection to the Kansas City Royals, but the song has nothing to do with that. It really has <laughs> to do with yeah. with about, you know, that they'll never be Royals. They'll never be the artists that they see in some of these over-the-top music videos. That's the way I interpret that song. So it's quite interesting. Okay, another song that came very quickly was the song Skyfall by Adele. She wrote those lyrics in 10 minutes. That's not the amazing thing. The amazing thing is that it won her a Grammy, a Golden Globe, and an Oscar. Wow. <laughs> and, what a vocal, too. Oh, absolutely. And let's go to 2005 with maybe one of the worst songs ever written. My Humps for Black Eyed Peas was originally written <laughs> for the Pussycat Dolls. So you know the bar was low when the Pussycat Dolls turned it down. <laughs> but there you go. What you going to do with all that junk? <laughs> okay, another song, right. 2001, Drops of Jupiter, was inspired by a dream that lead singer Pat Monahan had about his late mother. Now, that song is a bit over the top, but I really love it. I think it stands up today. I think the use of strings, and I think his powerful vocal on that song is just excellent. But tell me, did the wind sweep you off your Okay, Tom, what else you got? The Stone song, Miss You. Great song, number one in May of 1978. The Stones wrote that while they were in Toronto doing one of their performances that we've talked about at the Elma Combo. Jagger was jamming with Billy Preston, you know, who played on Get Back by the Beatles, yes. had his own solo career. They <clears throat> came up with Miss You. It was a disco groove, and it had a touch of the blues via a harmonica player they found in a Paris subway. It became the band's first number one hit in five years, and, he, and Mick Jagger said it's not really about a girl. It's really about the feeling of longing. There you go. And um, Temptations. We love the Temptations. Did you know that they sang back up? On Super Freak by Rick James. And if you didn't know that, you don't listen to the song because at one point he goes, Temptation, sing. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. You've unleashed things on us here. <laughs> the Foreigner song, I Want to Know What Love Is, featuring uh, Broadway singer Jennifer Holliday on vocals and Tom Bailey from the Thompson Twins on keyboards. And speaking of keyboards, huh. you told me this amazing song fact. That great keyboard sound on Waiting for a Girl Like You was by... Uh, Thomas Dolby. Right. That's right. I learned that from you. Okay. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the song, Where Did Our Love Go? So that is Lamont Dozier. I love that interview. And he talks about mm. how the Marvelettes passed on that song. And there was a rumor going around uh, Motown that Lamont Dozier and Brian Holland and the other Holland had written... Um, Eddie. Eddie Holland had written a dud of a song called Where Did Our Love Go? You don't want to record this song, whatever you do. Anyway, the Supremes record it. They're not a big fan of it. They're kind of low-key when they do it. It becomes their breakout song. Anyway, the beat at the beginning of the song. Okay, Adam, play that. The ch -ch. 
That beat right there, that's two boards being smashed together. Wow. There you go. Um, and one final one. Okay, so Sonny Bono writes a song, I Got You, Babe, and he wakes up Cher and asks her to listen to this new song that he got. He sings the lyrics, which he had written on a piece of shirt cardboard. She thought it was okay, but really wanted a, a song that modulated. In other words, that's a key change, right? Yeah. So he changed the key at the bridge and woke Cher up again hours later to hear it, and she absolutely <laughs> loved that song. That's all it takes is a key change <laughs> to you win know, someone's heart. You know hmm. what? For some songs, I think that's the secret ingredient sometimes. That's that's the magic? Yeah. Yeah. Me telling a songwriter what the key, secret ingredient to a good song is. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, Barry Manilow would agree with you on the key change thing. <laughs> oh, right. On Copacabana. Well, on every song. Yeah, on every song. It's really just a, a kind of a modulation party. You're right. Because he does it in Mandy. He does it in um, Weekend in New England when he goes, and tell me when will. Yes. And then he does it in Copacabana. You're absolutely right. Key change was the thing for Barry Manilow. <laughs> there you go. Cool song facts for this edition of Famous Lost Words. Time now for some music news. Okay, in light of all the controversy with Michael Jackson after the compelling and really disturbing documentary called Leaving Neverland, let's talk about Neverland itself. In light of the recent controversies, the former home of the King of Pop is currently listed for $31 million. That's a lot of money, but that is a $36 million price reduction. That shows you the cost of what's happening right now. Okay, next weekend, Motley Crue. They've been named Grand Marshals for the NASCAR Cup Series Auto Club 400 race in Fontana, California. That's next weekend. And uh, we also are talking about them because of their Netflix biopic called The Dirt. And that's brought them back into the headlines again. New Kids on the Block. They've released a new music video for Boys in the Band. That's a new song, and that's a week before they release their 30th anniversary edition of their album, Hangin' Tough. And this summer, NKOTB will hit the road on the mixtape tour with Salt and Peppa, Tiffany, Debbie Gibson, and Naughty by Nature. That sounds like fun. Nirvana, their live at the Paramount Seattle concert is finally getting a release on vinyl on April 12th. And the next day, April 13th, which is my birthday, that's Record Store Day, and U2 will release U2, the Europa EP to celebrate Record Store Day, and uh, there's lots of great stuff on that. Earlier, we talked about Alice Cooper. He's got a month-long tour, and it has the best name ever. It's called Old Black Eyes is Back. So it's a global tour, and his uh, supergroup, the Hollywood Vampires, will play seven dates, and that's with Johnny Depp and Joe Perry, I think. They will play in Las Vegas on May the 10th. And let's talk about Duran Duran. Simon Laban and John Taylor from Duran Duran will induct Roxy Music into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on March 29th, later this month, at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. That does it for this week's episode of Famous Lost Words. Special thanks to our producer, Adam Karsh, our executive producer, Rob Farina, and don't forget to catch up with past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you hear your favorite podcasts.